the book of Esther, chapter 8 tonight, and I'd like to read down through verse 8, I think it is, and then we're going to spend some time. It cannot be altered. It cannot be altered. That's the title tonight. Here in the book of Esther, chapter 8, we have the great work of God with regard to Mordecai, the great work of God with regard to Haman, the great work of God with regard to Esther, Ahasuerus, and many other players are been brought to our attention as we've seen the very fingerprints of God through the book of Esther. He, God has worked his everlasting counsel here, and he is directing all things. He is the director. The church is the actors. And all the rest are props. And many of those that were in the days of King Ahasuerus were props. But we also find that there were those that God had drawn to himself, revealed Christ to, and that they knew something about the gospel. Esther chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, it says, On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. The king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman, the Agagite, and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, which are in all the king's provinces. For now, excuse me, for how can I endure to see the evil that shall come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. Now we're going to find out as we go through here that the previous writing that had been signed by him could not be altered. But another rule or law could be made to fix it. So that law was going to be carried out. Well, as I think about this, why would it be recorded in God's word some laws about another country, another kingdom, King Ahasuerus? 
And we're also going to find out that these, this law is also mentioned in the book of Daniel. Well, we're going to find out that it is a type and a picture of how God is and his word is and his law is, that it is unchangeable and unalterable. But before we get to that point, back up with me here in the book of Esther for a reading in chapter 1, verse 19. Way back there in chapter 1, verse 19, we found out about a queen by the name of Ashtai. And here in verse 19, one of the uh, chamberlains, one of the spokesmen, uh, had this to say, and it reminds us of uh, what's been going on here. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered. Now, they had some idea about a law written could not be altered. Now, the only reason I could come to that these things are mentioned in the Scriptures is God wanted us to have some idea about Him, about His law and His being and His person that he cannot and will not be altered with circumstances, with people, or even with multitudes of prayers. His will will not change. Well, let's go to another passage, and that is found in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, we have some similar writing here because in uh, many respects we have Daniel in a kingdom, much like Esther is in a kingdom, the same one. And here in Daniel chapter uh, 6, verse 8, Daniel chapter 6 and verse 8, we have this law of the Medes and the Persians mentioned again. That's why Daniel had to be put into the lion's den. All right, here it goes. In, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day, and prayed and give thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask of a petition of any God or man within the thirty days save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing is true concerning the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is 
that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. How often we find this consideration in the scriptures, particularly here in the book of Daniel, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is unalterable. It cannot be changed. Now we will follow in the book of Esther that the law that Haman had the king sign is not going to be changed, but a different law is going to be given that the Jews have the right to defend themselves. And that we're going to find out that they do, and they defeat the enemy. Well, let's go just a little bit further here in the book of Daniel. And there it tells us in verse 17, and a stone was brought. Well, verse 16, the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Now, as we've read through a number of places, we find out that this law of the Medes and the Persians is unalterable. That's where Esther is. That's where Daniel is. And you know, my friends, that's where we are. We're under an unalterable reigning God. And we find what a blessing that is. Now, in the days of Esther, it may have caused some consternation. And in the days of Daniel, it may have caused some consternation. But for us to find out that our God is unalterable and his rules are unalterable and his law is unalterable and all things about him are unalterable. In fact, we find that passage of scripture over in the book of Malachi that we so often go to, Malachi chapter 3. Would you join me there as we read about the unalterable God? We find he cannot and it cannot be altered. In, in the book of Malachi, chapter uh, 3 and verse 6, we read these words. And they, they've been the comfort for the church. When people were reading through the Old Testament, they'd stumble on these verses of Scripture in their dire depression and find out he doesn't change. He will not alter himself. He will not alter circumstances to satisfy the whims of people. As it tells us here in the book of of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not, I am unalterable, I am unchangeable. And that is a characteristic and an attribute about God that we bow before and are thankful for, that he is unalterable. In fact, he goes on to say, Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now, If he was fickle like we are, his mind towards the church would change on a daily basis, well, minute basis, (laughs) us ever second basis. But he is inalterable, changes not, is not fickle, will not go from one position to another position. He will not try to find out, well, as one politician was asked about a, a certain bill, and he said, Well, some of my friends are for it, and some of my friends are against it, and I'm with my friends. So, you know, we are like that. The Lord revealed himself in the words of blessings that he required Balaam to speak only blessings to the children of Israel, even though the will of Balaam was so different God controlled his will. 
as we've read there so often in the book of Numbers. And he writes this. You know, it's good to know who's saying things when we read the scriptures. And Balaam said this. We just read through there the last few Sundays in going through the book of Numbers. But Balaam said this, but he had God's hands back here moving his lips because this is what he wanted, what God wanted said about God and not what Balaam wanted to say. So let's just go over there one, one other time. Numbers chapter 23. In the book of Numbers chapter 23, these are the words of a false prophet. These are the words that God gave a false prophet. You know, I think of Balaam and I think of Pilate. And Pilate could only say, I have written what I have written. And who had a hold of his hand when he was writing that out is Almighty God. All right, here in the book of Numbers, chapter 23. In Numbers chapter 23, there in verse 19, Balaam said this, but we find out he could only speak blessings to Israel. And what a blessing it is to read this and to have this in your heart. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent, that he should change his mind. God cannot lie, and he cannot change his mind. Now, God doesn't want to. It's not, you know, people say, well, if I believe like you do, I'd, I would go do this. Well, God's not in that boat. He's not waiting for some law to change so he can do something alterable. He has not changed. And he said here, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Can you imagine Balaam's lips are burning as he's saying this? Because he would have got paid dearly if he could have said what he wanted to say, but he couldn't say it because God stopped him. Here we go on. He says, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall it not? Shall he not make it good? So everything that God has spoken is going to come to pass. All his word will be fulfilled. And he is not a man that he should lie, and he's not a man that he should repent. He doesn't have to change his mind. God does not have to come up with another plan. And so it's so wonderful when we read in the scriptures as the way things turned out in the garden. God was not caught short. God was not, what in the world just happened? But he had purpose, planned, and had the solution before the foundation of the world. We find also that this theme goes in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Would you turn with me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15? 1 Samuel chapter 15, this theme is carried throughout the scriptures. We have it Old Testament, New Testament. We have it here and there, everywhere, about the unalterability of God and the unchangeability of God. And the church is so thankful for that, that God will not change his mind about his church or anybody in it. Here in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 15, we read these words. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Oh, just prior to this, there's a prophecy. What, what, is the, what is the meaning of the bleating of the sheep and the lowing of the cows? Because they were all to be slain. 
And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Now it's interesting that Saul said the Lord thy God. He did not say the Lord my God. He referred this to Samuel. All right. Then if we look in verse 19. In verse 19, wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekite, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal, the wife thou gave me. (laughs) Who's in charge here? And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn away with me that I may worship the Lord. Who can pardon sin? Not Samuel. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord... Let me get there. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent thy kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Once again, we find that the scriptures share with us that he will not lie, and he cannot and will not repent. He will not change his mind. We find that in the New Testament, that there are two immutable things about God. That is, these two immutable things, which um, in Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, we read this about God. There's God is immutable, and the church says, thank you, God. In If you've ever done any study about Henry VIII, he loved you one day and cut your head off the next. We like a king that doesn't do that. He has set his everlasting love on the church. All right. Here in the book of Hebrews, 
chapter 6, verse 18, it says that by two immutable things, God's counsel and oath, unchangeable, two immutable things, there is it's there's an unchangeability about God. In fact, we find that James mentions that there's not a shadow of turning. Not a shadow of turning with God. It goes on to say, it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into the, within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So our Savior, our God, our Lord is unchangeable. His rules change not. We find that whatever he does is unchangeable. Every characteristic and attribute of Almighty God cannot and will not change. His love does not change, and his mercy does not change, and his righteousness does not change, and his wisdom does not change, and his sanctification does not change, and his great salvation and his grace do not change. There is nothing fickle or inconsistent in the mind of God towards his people. He has loved them with an everlasting love, and he will preserve them with an everlasting preservation and he will bless them with an everlasting blessing, and he will be kind to them with an everlasting kindness, and he will be gentle with them with an everlasting gentleness. That is God. And we see that in the book of Esther and in the book of Daniel about that rule of the Medes and the Persians is a reflection, a very small microcosm, a very poor uh, picture, but it is a picture of the greatness of our God in his unchangeability. That his choice of the church before time is unalterable. His sovereignty, his will cannot change. His purpose of the gospel and his purpose to regenerate all his own people and to promise eternal salvation, which God has promised before the world began. Eternal promised salvation. It is still a declaration of his holiness, the blessing of the church is that he did not just keep the law. The law is unchangeable. It will not and cannot be broken. It will be held. Now, we're going to find out that that law is unchangeable, and there's only one way that God can be just, and that is keep his holy law and justify people that are sinners. There's only one way. And we'll look at that in just a moment. The law does not change. It is a declaration of his holiness. And he is a holy God. We find that continuously mentioned throughout the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The blessing to the church is just didn't keep the law, but he fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law. It's not that he just kept every jot and tittle, but he fulfilled the law. And in so doing, as we find in the, in the book of Romans, would you turn there with me to the book of Romans? This is, oh, what a blessing. He, he does not change. 
He's unchangeable. He, he is better than the law of the Medes and the Persians. Secondly, because he doesn't make a law and then have to change it and add another law to it. We see that how human, human it was for that to happen. But here with regards to God, Romans chapter 7, there's the Apostle Paul, and to many people he says, what is he, what's he talking about M- marriage here at this point about? Well, let's just see what he had to say. In chapter 7, verse 1, he said, Know ye not, brethren? For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another the man, uh, to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law. Now, the law didn't pass away. God just, in Christ, Not only did he keep it, but he fulfilled it. And he said, now as a result of that, when you are given the new birth, you are dead to the law. It has no more dominion over you. Going on, it says there, we shall be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motives of the sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth... Fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now in this same book in chapter 3 and verse 26, the question is asked. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26, the question is asked, how can, how can, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. What's that mean? I must have sin accounted for. The soul that sinneth, it must die. Just. And then, at the same time, the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Now, God is unalterable. God is unchangeable. God is immutable. There's not a shadow of turning with him. And he has this very strong rule, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. This is the law of God. And every one of us have sinned against God. And he said, now, how can this person that has sinned against God be justified? How can, without altering God's purpose, his glory, his sovereignty, his majesty, and in God's eternal purpose, he determined that there is only one way that could happen. Now, I had a preacher tell me one time, God could have come up with any way he wanted to save man. No, he couldn't. With his characteristics and attributes he could not. There is only one way that he could be just 
and justifier because he needed and required that someone pay that price. And it could not be the person and it could not be another person that stepped in for that person. Why? Even the high priests in the Old Testament were sinners. And they proved it by dying. And then another one had to come along. The prophets, they were human and they were sinners. And how do we know it? Because they died. And how do we know about Christ? He was appointed before the foundation of the world in the covenant of grace that the only way that mankind could ever be saved, anybody could ever be saved because of the holiness of the law and the requirement that it be kept, that that sin of those people that he was going to die for must be paid for in full and nobody could ever bring it up again. No wonder we read here in the book of Romans, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. He's the one that has made them just. How? By imputing their sin to a substitute. Now, not just any substitute. All the animals in the Old Testament would not fulfill that. And nobody could die for another person and justify them. But we have the Holy Son of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous, that could come and have sin imputed to him, the God-man. He, was a, he had escaped all of the relationship to Adam. He, Adam was a type of him, but Jesus Christ, the second Adam, could do what Adam could not do. He could not take care of the problem that he had created. All right? He might be just and justifier, you know, Job says, but how shall a man be just with God? How can a man be just with God? How can God be just and justifier? There is no God else beside me in the book of Isaiah 45 and verse 21, a just God and a Savior. Just means justice has been served. He is a just God. He cannot just throw the law away. He cannot just say, I love them so much that their sin can, is put away. There must be someone that will come. The greatness of Christ's sacrifice, how God in his threefold character of persons may and indeed does justify the believer in Jesus with, while preserving his own glory in full perfection of all the rights of his justice. Now, I wish I'd have said that, but Mr. Hawker did. In his glory, the believer is justified in Jesus while preserving his own glory. He doesn't permit sinners. He puts sin away. How glorious, as we read with regard to the law of the Medes and the Persians, a reflection upon our God, a reflection upon his grace, a reflection upon his holiness, a reflection upon his purpose, a reflection upon his character, a reflection upon him on behalf of his people, I change not. That law must go to someone. The justice of that law must go to someone. And we find the Lord Jesus Christ 
had that sin imputed to him, counted to his charge. And when we hear him cry, I'm I'm stepping into Sunday's message a little bit. When we hear him cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's justice being served on another, on a substitute. And the people say, thank you, God. Now it's either going to be him or us. Justice will be served. Justice will be served. It will be carried out. It was carried out on Christ for the church. It will be carried out by individuals that are not in Christ. So as, just going back there to the book of Esther for just a moment, the book of Esther, chapter 8. In verse 8, this is about the law of the Medes and Persians. Just think what it is about the law of God the purpose of God, the salvation of God. It says there in verse 8, Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name, and seal with the king's ring, may no man reverse. God said, with my hand I do this, and no man shall reverse it. And that's how he can give eternal life. Not us, but he gives eternal life. Well, we'll stop there tonight, and we'll pick this, Lord willing, up the next time we meet. That God would give grace and cause us to understand what it is that there would be no alteration to God and no alteration to His purpose.